been, you don't know what you're missing. Now that you dreamed of being adventurous, consider this my invitation. Good morning, everybody, and a special welcome to those of you joining us for the first time. You may notice that we are in a tent, which is not normal for us here at Keystone, but we are thrilled that you are with us. And again, after the second service, we'll be baptizing some more people over in the tank, and Randy and I will be in the water, and after Ryan told me his legs were numb, I can't wait. It's going to be awesome. So anyway, oh, and a special heads up, next week is the 4th of July weekend, and our own Ryan King is going to be teaching. I know. I know. So I, I mean, I, I think that alone is going to be worth the commute. So anyway, it's going to be good times. Uh, today, we get to continue a series unpacking why we exist as an organization. We wanted to take some time this summer in the tent to remind us all of the story right at the heart of Keystone's mission to help people find and follow Jesus. And if you're new around here, that's why we exist. We exist to help people find and follow Jesus. And it comes right from something Jesus said right before he exited planet earth, like his final charge to his first followers. A Bible nerds call it the great commission. And Matthew, who was one of those first followers who was there, records it for us. Uh, it's in Matthew chapter 28, verse 19. Here's what uh, Matthew tells us that Jesus said. Jesus looks at his disciples. He says, therefore go and make disciples of all the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, and teach them to obey everything I have commanded you. So you break this down. There's three specific directives that Jesus gives his first followers. Uh, he tells them to make disciples. Uh, and that charge meant something significant to the first century audience to which Jesus spoke. Because becoming a disciple was an invitation into a specific sort of relationship. Jesus says, make disciples of all the nations. This thing is wide open. Uh, but, but to be a disciple was to literally learn a new way of being human. There was some information that you were going to have to learn, but the purpose of learning wasn't just knowing. The purpose of learning was to actually be a different sort of person in the world. If you were a disciple in the first century, you wanted to be just like your teacher or in the Hebrew language, rabbi. You wanted to be just like your rabbi. So disciples would watch as their rabbi taught their yoke, which is their sort of approach to doing life. They would watch how their rabbi treated poor people and needy people, how they would respond and relate to people in authority or people over which they had authority. They would watch as their rabbi would give and forgive and serve and love. And again, the idea was that you would over time become like your teacher, like your rabbi. Years ago, I was on a study trip in Turkey, and the guy that was leading the trip uh, shared with us a wonderful blessing from the first century uh, for a disciple. It went like this, may you be covered in the dust of your rabbi. In other words, in the first century, you walked everywhere. May you follow so closely behind your rabbi that literally the dust off his sandals covers you. And then Jesus wanted his first followers to teach people to be just like him. And that is the same charge he gives the church today. So we exist to help people find and follow 
Jesus, and that you know, goes after that first section of the Great Commission, to make disciples of all the nations. Second thing you see there is to baptize them. And this is a great day to, to talk about this. Uh, in, in the first century, uh, baptizo, which is the Greek word from which we transliterate baptize, literally meant to immerse. Uh, and so there's a first century cookbook somebody found that says, in order to make a pickle, you baptize a cucumber in vinegar. I mean, that's great. I don't, you know, so that, that was what they understood it to be. But for a Christian, baptism is a public declaration of a new association. So you're up in front and you say to people, I have decided to follow Jesus. I understand what God did for the world through Jesus, and I embrace that reality for myself. And again, after the service, we'll be baptizing uh, in the tank over here some, some Keystone friends. And, and if you're wondering too, like, okay, how, what, what is infant baptism? Well, that's a church tradition that goes back to the second century, and it basically is a sign and seal of the covenant of grace God has demonstrated to the world through Jesus, and it designates a baby as a part of the visible church. And so you probably caught that as Randy was talking in the first service, but that's sort of how that all rolls out. So first thing, make disciples. Second thing, baptize them. The third thing that we see is to teach them to obey. And this one is really the most obvious. It's like Jesus doesn't want us to just learn stuff. He wants us to do what he says to do. And in fact, one day Jesus says as much to his first followers. Uh, he says to them, why do you call me Lord, Lord, and not do what I say? And Lord is just like boss. Like you signed up to follow me. You got to kind of do what I tell you to do. And so to obey Jesus is to let him lead your life. It's like the Carrie Underwood song. You know the one I'm talking about? Jesus, take the wheel. Exactly. And it's a cheesy song and probably not great. But anyway, that's the idea. Uh, following Jesus then isn't just about a hope of heaven when you die. It's about learning a new sort of life here and now. Now, this morning on my way out, I have a little devotion time, and I found a quote I want to share with you. It's from a guy named Richard Rohr. He's an author um, and a father in the church. Here's what he says. He says, Christianity is meant to be a loving way of life now, not just a system of beliefs and requirements that people hope will earn them a later reward in heaven. Again, the opportune word is now. We believe that Jesus wants to lead us to a better life now. He wants it for us. He wants it for our neighbors. He wants it for our community, and he wants it for the world. And so we as a church exist to help people find and follow Jesus because that's where we believe the life is found. And so during this series, we're exploring the first accounts of Jesus' life, like exploring what does it really mean to follow him? And they're found in the four letters that begin the New Testament of your Bible, Matthew and Mark and Luke and John. And in these accounts, again, we get to discover what Jesus had in mind for his followers and for his church. So today, we get to explore one of my favorite scenes uh, in the New Testament. It's actually a scene where Jesus gets angry. And, and it, it's a little surprising, uh, especially because we don't often associate anger with Jesus. Anger doesn't seem very Jesus-y. Would you agree? Right, And I think I know why we don't think anger is very Jesus-y. Um, I grew up in church, like many of you, and spent time in the basement with the cinder block walls that smelled like my Aunt Hazel. You know what I'm talking about? Like that. <laughs> Some of you were like, Aunt Hazel smell. I don't have an Aunt Hazel. I get the smell. Yeah. Um, and we had pictures on the walls that looked like, well, like this. Okay? And, okay, just a couple things to notice about this photo. I had so much fun picking, by the way. I probably spent 10 minutes, and, and Randy's like, what are you doing? I was like, I'm looking at old pictures of Jesus. Anyway couple observations about this. Number one, Jesus looks sedated. Would you agree? <laughs> right? He just does. I mean, he's dressed in like a, a white robe and his head is glowing. Um, and, and he doesn't even look Jewish, which is funny for me, not for you. That's okay. Yeah. Yeah. 
And it's like the Jesus I grew up with was just like stoic philosopher who would say, you know, come follow me. And people would say, oh, we will follow you. See, but this picture, although it's lovely, Thomas Kincaid, I had fun with that one. But anyway, some, some of you are like, hey, that's too close to home. Sorry, moving on. Right. Yeah. But um, this isn't the picture the Bible contains of Jesus because the biblical accounts of Jesus' life describe a man of passion and a man of purpose. Uh, he was a man who was revolutionary uh, in his day and in our day, and he was a man who got angry. And before you object, um, I just need a caveat. Jesus' anger isn't like our anger, okay? And so to help explain what I mean by that, I need to tell you where I was last Saturday. Um, last Saturday, I was stuffed in a minivan with my four children, my beautiful bride, and about a week and a half's worth of stuff that we needed for our family to be on vacation. And we spent 12 hours last Saturday in our minivan driving on the West Virginia Turnpike on our way from North Carolina to Cedar Point in Sandusky, Ohio, where it was 95 degrees. It was awesome. Yeah. Um, so midway through the day, it's getting to lunchtime and the kids are hungry and I'm hungry and my wife is hungry, but we're on the West Virginia Turnpike and friends, there's about a 60 mile stretch that I poorly timed where there is no food. Okay. And so the kids are like, dad, when are we going to, when are we going to, so I was a little frazzled by the time uh, we finally reached the uh, Turnpike Oasis. Are you familiar with these? <laughs> it's like you pay theme park prices for <laughs> terrible, awful food because they're the only ones around. But in this moment, it felt like a ray of light from heaven had descended upon planet Earth because I saw it and I just, and this is, I found it on Google. Somebody took a picture of a turnpike oasis. I love it. Anyway, uh, it has a Burger King. It has a Starbucks. Come on now. It has a Pizza Hut Express. I wasn't sure what that meant. It has a KFC. There's a convenience store. It's like you're in a food court without the mall. Okay, so I said, this is just going to be awesome. And I said, kids, you get to pick from all these restaurants. And they're like, yes, Father, who we are so appreciating right now. And, and so we walk in and it was not what I expected. I inadvertently had wandered into the Turnpike Oasis from hell. Okay, it was so dirty and it was so understaffed. It set a new bar as far as how bad something could be and still be open. And... It, I was a little angry going in, and as the longer we spent in there, the more angry I got. Because uh, first thing I said to the kids, what do you want to eat? They said, we want Pizza Hut. So I go to Pizza Hut, and I get in line, and there's a long line, and there's one guy behind the counter, God bless him. And I get up front, and I try to order three personal pan pizzas. He tells me they have one. I, I say, can you make more? He says, no. <laughs> and I wanted to scream at him, why do you exist? You know, like, what? So, so it gets better. So then I say, okay, well, the kids will have to split the pizza and then my wife and I are going to have salad. So I get in line at Burger King again, another really long line. And we get to the front and I order two salads. She informs me they have one and that they're out of lettuce. <laughs> How do you run out of lettuce? And she said, there's no stores anywhere around here. And I said, I noticed. <laughs> I was like, and then, so I thought, okay, well, there's a little convenience store in there. I'll just go get some beef jerky. We'll just do the beef jerky thing. We'll get some coffee. We'll survive. I walk into the convenience store. There are eight customers wandering around this small convenience store. There is no one on staff at the convenience store. There is no one at the register. There is no, and I thought, this is unbelievable. So after the worst lunch of my life, I get back into the minivan with my kids and I go to get gas at the attached, <laughs> yeah, you already know where this is going. 
half of the pumps were out of order. I had to wait for five cars. And I, I literally said to my wife, I want to call fire down from heaven to consume this place. <laughs> like, skadoosh, done. Just start over, right? And, and, and so as we're driving away and I am monologuing about the horrible things that we've just experienced and how awful it was, she says to me, you know, what are you talking about in church next Sunday? <laughs> and I said, anger. <laughs> and then I said, but it's, it's the good kind of anger, not like the kind of anger I just modeled for my children. But I have confidence that with some counseling, they can work it out and it'll be, it'll be okay. Well, the final week of Jesus' life takes place uh, during a feast called Passover. And that's the setting for this moment when Jesus just erupts. And uh, if you're unfamiliar with the story, Passover uh, commemorates the day when God rescued the children of a man named Israel from or slavery in Egypt. And it had been 1,500 years, but the exodus or the, the thing that Passover inaugurated was still the center of the Jewish conscience. And so uh, hundreds and thousands of Jewish people would have flooded the city of Jerusalem that week. Um, some estimate hundreds of thousands would have entered. And so Jesus and his disciples enter, and it would have felt a bit like Disney World during spring break. Uh, because there were Jews from all over the world that would have made the pilgrimage to pay their respects to God and to offer a sacrifice on the altar at the temple in Jerusalem. Uh, there's a historian named Josephus who tells us that they actually installed a drain under the altar because of all the blood from all the sacrifices that would flow from the Temple Mount down into the streets of Jerusalem like a river. Uh, and just imagine with me, um, it was a festival that drew Jews from all over the world. And for some, this would have been the trip they'd saved for all their lives. Like this year, we're going to Jerusalem for Passover. This year, we're going to bring a lamb and we're going to sacrifice it to God to thank him for what he has done for us. And so the city is packed with pilgrims. Jesus and his disciples enter. And, and what they find when they get there left them stunned and confused. Because you see, in the first century, the temple had been turned into a tourist trap. And at the center of it all was a group of corrupt religious leaders called Sadducees. And the Sadducees were the most powerful people in the land of Israel in the first century. Uh, and so what they did in order to sort of enrich themselves and fund a lavish lifestyle, the Sadducees had created an abusive system. All the offerings that were brought to the temple, uh, the temple tax, and the profits from the market all landed in their laps. And so what they had done is they had sort of increased the prices on everything. And in addition, because of an Old Testament rule, uh, the only money that could be used in the temple was the local currency, the shekel. And so people from all over the world would come and they'd have to exchange their local money for the proper currency to buy and sell at the temple. So you're ripped off in your, um, in your money conversion and then you're ripped off on the price of whatever it is that you need to buy in the temple. The exorbitant, there were exorbitant exchange rates. Moreover, um, if you wanted to make an animal, uh, animal sacrifice, the Sadducees had said, okay, you have to have a pre-approved animal. So you have to buy one of our animals. So even though you lugged your sheep lucky three countries with you to offer him on the temple uh, mount, you had to trade him in for a pre-approved model at, of course, a hefty premium. And, and so what was happening in Jerusalem in the first century at the end of Jesus' life is that the religious leaders were becoming rich beyond imagination while many of the common people uh, found themselves starving. 
And so just imagine if you had walked three or four countries to get to the temple and you experienced this system and something inside of you is just screaming, this is wrong. And it's into this twisted reality that Jesus and his disciples come. And uh, Mark, an early follower of Jesus, records what happened for us. It's in Mark chapter 11. If, if you brought a Bible and you want to follow along, otherwise it'll be on the screen. Mark tells us this. He says, Jesus entered Jerusalem and went to the temple. He looked around at everything. But since it was already late, he went out to Bethany with the 12. So he looked around at everything. Jesus sort of took in the reality. He knew what was going on. But there was probably something about seeing it with new, fresh eyes, knowing that he was nearing the end of his life. And I wonder what was going on inside Jesus' mind and his heart. Now, Bethany is just outside of Jerusalem. Here's a map, very close by. They had friends, Mary and Martha and Lazarus, who they would often stay with when they were in Jerusalem. So I imagine them going to the Temple Mount and then going and having dinner with Mary and Martha and Lazarus. The next day, they get up and head back to the temple. Uh, Let's take a look at this next verse. Uh, It goes like this. Uh, The next day, as they were leaving Bethany, Jesus was hungry and seeing in the distance a fig tree in leaf, he went to find out if it had any fruit. When he reached it, he found nothing but leaves because it was not the season for figs. Okay, really clear. There's a fig tree with no figs on it because it's not supposed to have figs on it because it's not time for them to have figs on it yet. And so Jesus, I'm sure, you know, here's a picture of a fig tree. I kind of get a a sense of what that would have been like. Let's look at the next slide. Here's what happens next. Uh, Jesus said to the tree, just pause. Jesus is talking to a tree. Is that great? I love it. Read your Bible. Good stuff. Then he said to the tree, may no one ever eat fruit from you again. And his disciples heard him say it. And then they looked at each other and went, he needs to try the decaf. (laughs) I mean, really? Jesus, that's, you're, you're cra- that's crazy. That, that's, that's absolutely insane. It's not supposed to be. Anyway, um, on reaching Jerusalem, Mark tells us, uh, Jesus entered the temple area and began driving out those who were buying and selling there. He overturned the tables of the money changers and the benches of those selling doves and would not allow anyone to carry merchandise through the temple courts. My translation, Jesus and his disciples, who, by the way, were training to be just like Jesus, enter the temple in Jerusalem and stage a riot. They trash the temple courts. There's another account of of this day in John, uh, another account of Jesus' life. And John actually tells us that Jesus made a whip and used it. Here's a picture um, I found online of an artist rendering of that day. It was just imagine Jesus uses a whip to drive people out of the temple courts who are buying and selling. This is not the Jesus that was hanging on the wall in the basement that smelled like Aunt Hazel, right? I mean, this is, this is a very different sort of Jesus. Uh, Jesus got angry that day in the temple. He was furious that a group of powerful men had corrupted the temple. And this is key. Jesus' anger spurred him to action. Jesus' anger spurred him to action. And this is where anger turns redemptive. Mark tells us, and as Jesus taught them, he said, is it not written, my house will be called a house of prayer for all the nations, but you, speaking to these Sadducees, these religious leaders, you have made it a den of robbers. And Jesus' rebuke seems harsh to us, but we don't realize the half of it. Uh, Jesus here is employing a technique that rabbis would use in the first century called a remez. He knew that the Sadducees had memorized large blocks of the Old Testament. And so when he quotes from the Old Testament prophet Isaiah, 
They know what comes after the part he quoted, and that's where this thing really stings. So check out what comes right after where Jesus says, my house will be called a house of prayer for all the nations. You've made it a den of robbers. Here's what comes next from Isaiah. Israel's watchmen are blind. They all lack knowledge. They're all mute dogs. Jesus called the Sadducees mute dogs. Do you love it? I love it. Okay. They cannot bark. They lie around and dream. They love to sleep. They're dogs with mighty appetites. They never have enough. They're shepherds who lack understanding. They all turn to their own way. Each seeks his own gain. Jesus confronts the corrupt religious system because he says, you are looked upon as leaders that will shepherd people into a relationship with God and you built a kingdom that's all about you. And so I have come to challenge you and to turn over the tables where you are ripping people off. Interesting question. I wonder if the Sadducees caught what Jesus was saying. I think they did. Check out what Mark tells us in the next verse. It says, the chief priests and the teachers of the law heard this and began looking for a way to kill him, for they feared him because the whole crowd was amazed at his teaching. No kidding. They're amazed at his teaching because he's finally a religious leader who showed up on the scene who's making some sense. Like, there's no way that God wants it to be like this. And so Jesus emerges the last week of his life as a real threat to the religious and political establishment. And the chief priests that Jesus refers to, or that Mark refers to, is another designation for the Sadducees. They saw Jesus as a threat to their livelihood, which he was. And scholars argue that this may have been the day in the temple, that this may have been the crime that ultimately leads to Jesus' death. The Sadducees say, okay, we thought he was a threat, now he is a threat, and he needs to be stopped. Check out uh, one more verse here. Mark tells us in the next, next verse. When evening came, they went out of the city. In the morning, as they went along, they saw the fig tree withered from the roots. Peter remembered and said to Jesus, Rabbi, look, the fig tree you cursed has withered. And I don't know whether that made sense to them at the time or if that was just even weirder, okay? Like Jesus can do miracles, fine, but so this poor fig tree, what in the world is going on? Well, in the first century, the fig tree was a powerful, powerful image. Because in the Old Testament, the fig tree represented the religious leaders of Israel. And so when Jesus curses the fig tree, he is symbolically cursing the Sadducees who had corrupted the temple. And he's basically demonstrating that their time and power is coming to a close. Their version of the temple and its inherent corruption is over. And in fact, will soon be unnecessary because God is about to inaugurate a new relationship, a new covenant in the blood of Jesus, which will in a few days spill. So no longer will you need blood flowing from the altar in the temple. The blood of Jesus becomes a once and for all sacrifice. So that's what happened that day in the temple. And, and just as we, as we come in for a landing, just a question, um, how was Jesus' anger different than my anger? You're like a lot and it didn't involve Pizza Hut. Right, right, right. How is Jesus' anger different than my anger? Or how is Jesus' anger different than the anger that we all so naturally feel. Well, I, I don't know about you, but I have a few thoughts about my anger. Um, I tend to get angry when I'm inconvenienced. I tend to get angry when my agenda is interrupted and my image is tarnished. I tend to get angry when my ego is bruised. I tend to get angry when things don't go my way. 
And when I get angry, I, I refuse to be patient and kind and loving and gracious. That, 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 that's me. But Jesus got angry. Well, Jesus got angry when things weren't the way God wanted them to be. Over and over again, Jesus lays down his pride. And Jesus' anger isn't about his reputation. It's about God's reputation. And here's the thing. He invites you and I as his disciples to follow that example. I would argue Jesus' first disciples never forgot what happened that day in the temple. There they learned that Jesus wanted them to be angry when things aren't the way God wants them to be. And I would argue Jesus wants you to be angry when things aren't the way that God wants them to be. So, so just a question, have you ever felt that sort of anger that you sensed something just isn't right? Maybe you're watching the news. Uh, maybe you see something on Facebook. Maybe you hear a story of a friend who just was treated very unjustly and something inside of you. I mean, it's, it's anger, but it's not like an anger you typically would identify as anger. It's, it's a it, it's an anger instead of destroying, it's a sort of impulse for a redemptive anger. It's a longing. Like th- this has to, someone has to do something about this. Or, or maybe for you, it's like, you know, you do, watch, you do watch the news cycle and you hear about people in need and you just think, I, I, just, I don't know how I could ever help, right? I just feel paralyzed because, because the needs in our world are so great. And I think, you know, 2,000 years ago, you'd be aware of like the 10 people who live closest to you. And now we get to you know, participate in the struggles of the entire world. And, and so what do we do today? How do we, how do we do something redemptive with that anger, that impulse that we feel? And I remember years ago, I was at a conference and a pastor was talking about this tension. He said, you know, so many of us don't do anything because, well, because we just feel like the problems are so big. He goes, if that's you and you have that sense like this must stop, this must be changed. He says, I just want to give you a principle to sort of apply in your life. And I think it's how anger can move to redemption in an individual life. He said it this way. He said, I would encourage you to do for one what you wish you could do for everyone. Do for one what you wish you could do for everyone. And then he said this, he goes, this is an idea that flies in the face of fair, doesn't it? Because growing up, we're taught, man, if you do it for one person, you got to do it for everybody. Otherwise, it's not fair. He said, that's a really noble impulse, but in the end, it's a toxic idea because it shuts down really good things. He said, instead, do for one what you wish you could do for everyone. And I think if, if you think about how that might play out in your life, it's like, you know, I'm really, I'm really struggling with the plight of poor people in our city And I think, you know, you say, okay, well, I can't fix poverty in our city, but I might be able to make the difference for for just one. Instead of sort of rolling back in in a sort of paralysis, not not really apathy, but just thinking, I I don't know that I can move the needle on this. And maybe you don't have to. Maybe Jesus just wants us to, to be a part of the solution. He wants us to move in redemptive ways. I mean, when I was preparing for today, I thought my prayer, I think, is that that we stay angry for all the right reasons, you know, that, that we sort of put down the selfish anger, but, but that righteous anger, that, that that fire would just burn brighter and brighter and brighter as we follow Jesus. And the other thing I was praying is that God would begin to nudge each of us specifically to move that redemptive anger to action. Maybe you see that one struggling family or single mom or lonely friend, and you just have this sense of God going, okay, that's yours. That's your one, you know? Maybe, maybe you've, ever, you've been driving on the road and thinking about somebody and just pray, God, you know, please provide for their needs. And maybe, maybe this is just the bump you need to say, no, maybe you can. And maybe there's an angel up there going, prayer, yeah, you're right there, go ahead. You know what I mean? Like, do it, do it. And that's how that anger gets 
redemptive. It's a go deep, not, not wide. Do for one what you wish you could do for everyone. Make things a bit more like God wants them to be for the one. Friends, that's what followers of Jesus have been doing for thousands of years. And I would argue that is how the world changes. So in closing, I just want to ask you a question and I'll leave you with this. What makes you angry? Would you stand? I'll close this in prayer. Heavenly Father, um, we thank you that you sent Jesus into the real world to engage in real problems and to bring about real redemption. And I pray for those of us that consider ourselves his followers, I pray that you would awaken in us a desire to leverage whatever time, talent, and treasure we have to fight to make things a little more like you want them to be. Those of us who have tasted that know that those are the moments when our faith moves from concept to action and our relationship with you seems to move from black and white to color. We thank you that you went first, that you loved first, and that you invite us to respond to you in love. We thank you for Jesus. We thank you that you sent him among us to show us the way. And thank you for inviting us to follow. So we bless you. We thank you. We love you. In the matchless name of your son, we pray. Everyone said, amen. Friends, go in peace. Have a great day.